If you've ever served on a jury, or maybe even just watched a court drama on TV, uh, then you know that it's customary for the prosecutor to give his or her closing remarks at the end of the trial. How many of you remember the old show uh, Jag? Did anybody, did anybody watch Jag? Okay. I remember Jag was out when I was a kid. Um, I don't even remember what it stood for. It's like, what, what is it? Yes, yes. I just remember as a kid, that show bored me out of my mind. It's a show about military lawyers, right? Am I right? It's like Air Force or Navy or something like that. And they're there just to try these uh, crimes done in the military in court. I just remember going, oh, my goodness. Grandpa wanted to watch that every night. I think it came on at 7 on ABC. But I remember I would like when when it was time for the closing remarks, I would come running down the hall because I found it fascinating. You could sum up the entire show of Jag in the closing remarks of the lawyers. Arguably, the prosecution's closing remarks are nearly as important as the trial itself. The jury has had to sift through hours and sometimes days and weeks of evidence provided by both sides. And since the burden of proof rests with the persecution, it's up to him or her to summarize the arguments, to appeal to the jury's sense of justice, and recommend them to find the defendant guilty. Totally rests on them, and typically it rests on that one moment. Now in the last three chapters, Paul, being a good prosecutor, has laid out the evidence of our wrongdoing, of our wickedness, of our guilt. He has accused all mankind of sin and warned that all people stand under the just wrath of God. Paul has also systematically torn through this hypothetical Jewish defense and proven that not even once Jewishness excludes him or her from God's wrath. So he's ripped our moralistic, religious, self-righteous defense to shreds. And so now he moves to give his closing remarks and read the final verdict. That's right, we get one more week of Paul lambasting us as sinners. In this imaginary courtroom, one can almost hear Paul clear his throat as he rises from the prosecution table. He adjusts his tie, buttons his coat, and he steps out into the middle of the court. What then? Now, in asking this question, he signals that he's coming to a close. Are we Jews any better off? Now, he's already said that there was some advantage to being Jewish, but now he clarifies that the Jews' advantage does not make them any better than the Gentiles when it comes to the final day of judgment. They are not in any better position than the Gentiles. He then restates the charges, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. There's the charges, my friends, against you and against me. All are under sin. Do you hear the preposition that he uses? He doesn't say in sin. He doesn't say that we're on sin. He says we're under sin. That means we're under the just guilt and the condemnation of God. If all people are under, under sin, then all are culpable and therefore all are punishable. Who is worthy of punishment for sin? Well, the word all summarizes it pretty justly, doesn't it? His earlier statement, you have no excuse, resounds even here. My friends, our defenses have been utterly destroyed. Gentiles will perish without the law and, ju- and be judged by the law that is written on their hearts. Jews will be judged under the law because every Jew has done what the law says not to do. They stand as guilty along with the Gentiles. That said, there is nothing between every man and woman and the wrath of God. We are utterly exposed. We have no natural self-made defense, fortress, or refuge to shield us from the storm to come. It's just the reality of how we stand as sinners. Now, the prosecutor doesn't stop with restating the charges. He goes on to review the evidence. Now, in this moment, we're like defendants who are faced to listen and tremble as somebody else reads the list of their crimes. We are shown the depth of our evils in this moment. 
He publishes before all in writing that we are indeed sinners, thoroughly broken and fallen in our rebellion against God. And he uses the Old Testament text. And by using the Old Testament text, he literally throws the book at us to show how guilty we are. Most of his quotations come from the Psalms. There's a few from Isaiah, a few from the book of Proverbs. And the common theme is that you and I have been utterly depraved inside and out, that we are utterly fallen. Now, if anyone has ignored the evidence of Paul's logic throughout the previous chapters, then this next section seeks to give final validation for Paul's indictment. If a person thinks that Paul is being unreasonable, then just look at how the Old Testament describes us. It may seem as if he's just quoting random texts, but he's very well organized in the way that he uses these texts. He's not just spitting them off like machine gun fire. He's actually organizing them. He's going to show us from the inside out the sinfulness of our hearts, the sinfulness of our mouths, and the sinfulness of our feet. In other words, he's going to show us our internal status before God and the wickedness that lies inside, invisible to the eyes of all. He's going to show us the wickedness that can be heard and then the wickedness that can can be seen through our actions. Now, can I just make a moment of confession here? Over the last three weeks, I have been resistant in my own sermon study to acknowledge that this is describing me. I wasn't ready for this kind of indictment of myself. I thought of myself as a pretty good guy. I I, I theologically agree with everything that Paul said. I have for years. And yet, in just the rubber to the road kind of confession that comes with it, I really struggle. I still, there's this category in my mind. Yeah, but, right? I don't think we're ready yet to work from the inside out of what Paul's description is. So can I just ask you just for a brief moment? This is a bit abnormal for us. But will you, will you just for a moment pray in silence? I'm going to ask you to ask God to destroy your defenses today. I'm going to ask you to ask God to tear down the walls of your resistance. To not just pridefully say, well, hold on, this isn't me. And to actually allow scripture to hold up the mirror to you so that you can find the grace that is in Jesus Christ. You cannot taste the sweetness of the gospel until you've tasted the bitterness of your own sin. Okay? So let's take a moment and ask God's Spirit to work in our own hearts and ask Him to point out how this is true of us. So if you will just, in your chairs, just real quietly pray, and I'll keep preaching in just a moment. Lord God, it makes me sick to my stomach every time I read this text and realize it's a description of me. Father, it hurts to hear other people talk about my flaws and sins. It's uncomfortable. It's often associated with eye rolls from me, Father, with defenses and nuances and self-justification, Father. So I know that if I'm struggling with this text, And I'm struggling to allow this text to point out my sin. I know there's got to be others too. So Father, at this moment, will you let us tear down the pride? Father, we have uh, blockaded ourselves from your word at times. We believe all the harsh texts in scripture are reserved for other people. And yet, Lord, this text goes to war against us. This text bombs out the shelters of our moralism, religiosity, our self-opinionated value that we attach to ourselves. 
Father, I pray that you will empty us out today. God, this is the final section in Romans that really thoroughly shows our depravity. And Lord, we will miss all the sweet, good grace that you have in the rest of Romans 3, 4, and 5 if we do not get this. Father, knock down our fences. Let us stand exposed before you so that we can be clothed in Jesus. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. So we begin with our hearts. Paul borrows a few lines from Psalm chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, and Isaiah 53 to describe our internal status. Now remember, he's generalizing all humanity in this. He's not just thinking predominantly Gentiles and Jews or, or Jews. He's thinking all of us. He's including all mankind, implicating all mankind. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. The first part of the quote addresses our status before God. Very simply, no one is righteous, which means no one has a good innocent legal status before God. You stand in his court as a criminal. Do you realize that? You, if you die without Jesus, if you die without any kind of external justification, if you die and stand as you are, you are a criminal in the court of heaven. All of us have a rap sheet in God's court. Every single one of us. Nobody doesn't. We all have a background list full of all these heinous things that we've done against God. So who's innocent before God? No one. You know, we always, we always get this hypothetical. Would God really send an innocent good man on an island who never heard about Jesus to hell? My friends, Paul says right here, show me where the innocent guy is. Because there's not one. There's no one who does good. No, not one. We're criminals. And not only have we lost our innocent status, but even our minds are fallen. No one understands. As Paul said in Romans 1.21, we have become futile in our thinking and our foolish hearts are darkened. We are so fallen that we do not even think about God as we should. If, because of our sinful nature, we think about God at all, we rarely think about him rightly. In our twisted thinking, we can turn a good and loving God into a pernicious, diabolical, spiteful deity. He's got it out for us. Just as Eve was duped by Satan's temptation into believing that her gracious provider was in some way withholding good from her, we too fall into the temptation that God is holding us back from the things that will truly make us happy. We simply do not understand his goodness. We don't see him the way we should. Additionally, the fall has broken even our desires. So, so you see, our legal status is gone. We're, we're, we're any, any kind of innocence or proclaimed innocence, absolutely gone. Any kind of idea that, well, at least we know God. No, we don't understand. Our minds are broken. Now let's look at the desires. According to Romans 3, no one seeks for God. Now the word seek here can mean inquire. It can mean desire or it can mean search for. And in this text, it really doesn't matter which one of those three because they all could apply to inquire of God would mean to seek of his will, to seek out what he wants. As sinners, not only do we fail to accomplish the will of God, we rarely even have a concern to do so. How many times have people confronted us in our sin, and yet we're not so concerned about what scripture has to say about what we've done. We want scripture to side with us. We're not searching out and inquiring of God of what his will in our lives is. We're just inquiring of God of what he's going to do to all these other bad people. To desire God would mean to long for and pursue him above anything else, knowing that he's our greatest good and the ultimate beauty of life. And yet, as our history testifies uh, and our sin testifies, we desire other things all the time, don't we? We're constantly giving our affections away to something else. 
Lesser idols, rusty idols, cracked idols. We're giving our affections away to other things. John Calvin said that the human nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. We just churn them out left and right. New phone comes out, boom, new idol. New Apple Watch comes out, boom, new idol. Our children have issues, boom, there's a new idol. Our government starts to do new things, boom, there's a new idol. More money comes on the table, boom, there's a new idol. Less money comes, boom, new idol. I mean, we're just constantly churning out idols left and right. Things that steal away our affection and focus on the Lord God. We don't desire God. Sinners chase after other things because that's what sinners do. Now, when it comes to searching for God, we rarely even stop to thank God for the common everyday graces. You know, searching for God would mean like looking for him in the everyday, everyday things like, uh, like your families. We neglect our families. We fill our appetites. We pursue pleasures without ever remembering once that all good things come from God. Look at how often we take advantage of our spouses or, or our kids without ever thinking about them as gifts from God. We treat other people poorly, completely forgetting that they too bear the image of God, just like we do, tainted and flawed, absolutely, but we treat them as animals, as a dog to kick, not as an image-bearing human. We're not searching for God in other people. In our busy world, we hardly ever stop to appreciate his fatherly care. When was the last time you sat and listened to the wind in the trees? Watched the birds fly and eat without working or toiling, and yet they're still fed. When was the last time you stood in awe of the deep chasms of a mountain canyon? When was the last time that you just sat on your back porch to watch a sunset and remember that it is your God that painted it? My friends, we're not searching for God. We're searching for more money. We're searching for promotions. We're searching for accolades. We're searching for uh, self-preservation. But we're not searching for God. You see, here's the thing about sinners in this whole seeking thing. We are thoroughly self-centered, self-focused, self-seeking people, aren't we? That's just the nature of sinners. Now, the fact that we have lost our innocence our understanding of God and our desire for God leads to a terrible conclusion. That is, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Very simply, we have veered from the path that God desired for us. Scripture calls sinners worthless. It actually says that they have together become worthless. That's a, that's a tough thing to say, but it means this, that our moral code, moral code any kind of value inside of us is utterly depraved and empty, right? You, you, you evaluate us and what do you find? We're broken. We're sinful. That's what you're going to find. We're the house whose foundation is collapsing. We deserve to be condemned. We deserve to be knocked over. We don't deserve to be purchased and bought and appreciated. When God first made the world and people, he once called us what? very good. Now we're the exact opposite. Nothing good. That's how far we've fallen from our status. So he goes from the heart, and then next he goes to our words. On the inside, we are depraved, but our depravity is not compartmentalized to merely our internal status with God. It's not just that we are no longer innocent with God. Instead, our depravity displays itself in the way we speak, it is fitting that Paul would lay out the evidence of our evil hearts first before he attacks our mouths, because just as Jesus said, it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. So he knows where he's beginning. He's beginning with this fallen heart, this fallen status, and then he's going to point out the fallen words. He writes, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Now, the first quote comes from Psalm 5.9, if you wanted to look it up. The second from chapter 140, verse 3. And the third from Psalm 10, verse 7. And in each of these texts, the psalmist writes of the way that sinners use their mouths as tools of evil. Tools of evil. In our own day, 
you and I both know that our mouths can become weapons of mass destruction. Is anyone going to disagree with that? If you do, would you be willing to publish the last two years of your Facebook, Twitter feeds, and Instagram feeds? Our words can be weapons of mass destruction. I'm not saying it to shame you, it's just the nature of who we are. If we deny it, ask your wife when the last time was that you, you just pummeled her with your words. Ask your husband, when was the last time you just shattered him and broke him? Watch your kids walk crestfallen at the disappointment that you've just poured out on them. My friends, our words are not meaningless. They're not powerlessness. That whole thing about sticks and stones may break my bones, but your words will never hurt me. That's not true in Scripture. Words are proof of depravity. Do you want to know if you're a sinner? Listen to what you say about other people, about God, and about yourself. You ever had a gossip session about somebody? My friends, that's overflowing from something inside. That doesn't come from nowhere. You ever so wounded your spouse that you can't retract those words? That's coming from something. That doesn't come from anywhere, just nowhere. That comes from a heart filled with sin. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Right? It's interesting how often he equates our mouths with the serpent of Genesis 3. Have you ever thought about that? Like, who's the snake in Genesis 3? And Paul says, well, because of sin, you all are. Look at, look at the way he talks. Our words lead to death. So there's one. Our tongues deceive, just as the serpent deceived. And then his quote of chapter, uh, Psalm chapter 140, verse 3, is damning in this. He says that sinners make their tongues sharp as a serpent's. Under their lips is the venom of asp. What is an asp? It's another word for snake, isn't it? Adding to this serpentine metaphor, these texts describe the human mouth as a source of uncleanness and curses. That's interesting. Do you want to know how we know we, we live in a cursed world? Most of us would point first to what we can see being done. Well, Paul doesn't. He points first to what we can hear us say. The, the battleground of where the curse is, is your mouth. James talks about the same mouth that speaks blessing and then flows curses. You want to prove that we are utterly cursed and broken? Separated from God, it starts here. You hear it first, and then you see it acted out. In the ancient world, graves were considered unclean. Naturally so, right? Still to this day, we don't look at graveyards, and it's not like anybody wants to go have a picnic in a graveyard, right? They're unclean. There's something to, something to back away. You know why they're unclean? Because of the decay in the inside. So because of all that, they were considered unclean. Now, the connection of our words with that and with curses and bitterness implies how we can use our words to continue to bring others into darkness. Because of our sin, we're spewing curse. Curse upon curse upon curse. Whereas God made us to spew blessing, spread blessing. Instead, we're doing the opposite. In other words, from God's perspective... This isn't just from your pastor's perspective. I'm just reading from Romans 3. You'll have to disagree with Paul if you disagree with this. Paul sees your sinful words as a crime against humanity. You go back and read that psalm that he talks about, out of our mouth comes curses and bitterness. The actual Hebrew in the Masoretic text is we curse others and we oppress them with our words. Any daughter who has ever been under a, a very strict mother understands what that can be like, where mom just constantly throwing and burdening and oppressing the daughter. 
Any wife that's been in a verbally abusive relationship can attest that just how damaging all that is. My friends, our words are missiles. Our missiles that have a far greater impact than an actual missile would ever have. Paul wants us to understand as defensive as we might get in this point, he wants us to see what we're capable of. Our decades of friendships and marriages, our social media status, the way we talk about people we disagree with, the way we talk about other sinners prove just how atrociously we deal with those around us, even those we love. Even those we love. We're capable of great evil. And it's not without reason that James claims the tongue can be damaging as a hellfire. Have you ever thought of your mouth as the visible representation, the audible representation of hell? Oh. That's convicting, isn't it? Or it should be, at least to us. We're meant to represent heaven and the God of heaven and the Christ who's seated in heaven. And instead, James says that when we tend to speak, people see nothing but hell. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and is set on fire by hell, James 3.6. As little as we think about what we say, we tend to treat our words as just, we're just going to say them. And then we're going to ask everybody else to forgive afterwards if we're wrong. That's almost like pointing a gun at someone, pulling a trigger, and then asking them to forgive us after we've shot them. Some things can't be taken back. Some wounds can't be retracted. In the court of law, where the, when the judge says to the jury, you need to pretend you never heard that, or what does he say? Retract that or whatever. Yeah, disregard that comment. My friends, they don't disregard any comments. You can't unhear something you heard. From God's perspective, God sees our words as proof positive. This is evidence of why we need Jesus. You need Jesus. Be defensive all you want. You need Jesus. Your mouth proves it. You cannot speak the way you should. I cannot relate to my wife on my own the way I should. You let a flesh-based Justin respond to his wife, and the words do nothing but tear and hurt and break and discourage. You let flesh-based Justin have free reign of a worldwide global announcement and platform of what I think? My God, just wait and see what happens. You might as well hand me a nuclear football. We get way too defensive about, we're right, so we can say whatever we want to say. Romans 3 doesn't say that. How can you, as someone who's received grace and mercy and blessing, be the same people who spit out curses? just breaks my heart at what I'm capable of. My friends, there's times where I, as a pastor, I get cranky, you know? I get upset. I argue with my wife. I say things to my kids. You can just talk to Timothy sometimes. If you didn't know me as a teenager, I'm a pastor because I can communicate pretty well. God called me to be a pastor but I can communicate pretty well and I can argue pretty well. Imagine me as a teenager in my household. And I can use my words like a dagger. And that's why I need Jesus. Because my words stab, my words hurt, and yours do too. And the worst thing is they prove that we're aligned with the serpent more often than not. So he goes from our hearts to our mouths and now he goes to our feet. He's just like, hey, we're going to go from head to toe here to show how depraved you are. Uh, is there any Christians that would, would say that we're not fallen thoroughly, fully? 
Is there anyone here that would say, you know what, we're just partially fallen? No, I think, it, I think we theologically agree that we're completely fallen, right? And yet we still have our defenses in these various spots. Say, well, I'm not fully fallen in this area. No, you're fully fallen. Heart, head, toes, everything is fallen. You are broken. That's the nature of sin. It has corrupted you. You are damaged and therefore damnable. And you need justification in Jesus, even for your feet. In the ancient world, feet or the path we walk symbolizes the places we go, the way we live, and the orientation of our actions either to the Lord or from the Lord. Paul writes about sinners, their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. Now looking at this text, you may say that you've never had so much as a violent thought toward another person. Two things should be kept in mind. In scripture, and specifically in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus equates having anger toward a brother with murder. You guys remember that? In Matthew chapter 5, it was common knowledge to the Jews of that day that murderers deserve judgment. Do you agree with that? You murder someone, you deserve to be judged. However, Jesus adds... I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother, whoever calls his brother a fool, and you can insert whatever your favorite name is when you get mad at people, will be liable for judgment. Matthew 5.22. Both Romans 3 and Matthew 5 condemn an overall lack of love for other people as proof of one's deserved judgment. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. In our lives, in our attitudes to others, we tend to lead lives that are ruined relationships and ruined marriages, don't we? Why do you think it's so difficult for us to enjoy friendship, for example? As a pastor, you know how many times I've heard over the last few years, I just don't have any friends. My wife and I never talk. My husband and I never talk. I think one of the things that I have seen, especially among Christians who don't humbly acknowledge our reality, we tend to think that the reason we don't have friendships is because of all the other people's failings and flaws. But we don't think about, are you even friendly to be a friend with? The way of peace they have not. Give us enough time, we'll find something to fight about. We have a long enough coffee date together, and guess what? You and I are bound to disagree, and pretty soon we're pulling out swords and ready to go to town on each other. We don't know peace. We, sinners, tend to fight with those around us and chase away any who might become friends. My friends, you might not have friends because other people are bad at friendships. That's true. But you might not have friends because you are just not a good friend. You're not peaceful. You're not loving. You're not gentle. It's not always other people's faults. We tend to be, because of sin, divisive, separationist, line drawing, side picking, gossip warring, suspicious, assigning hidden motives to all kinds of people. I mean, things just come to me sometimes, you know, if we're just on, well, I saw the way they looked at me the other day. What look? Well, it looked like this. Can I just be honest with you? You know what this look means? They're not thinking anything. They're literally just sitting there staring. They're not thinking about you. Right? We tend to be people who assign motives. We don't know how to have friendships. We don't know how to have peace. My friends, just swallow the bitter pill. Accept it for yourself. You as a sinner are not able to relate with other people. The way of peace they have not known. Ruined relationships is a norm for sinners. Ruined marriages is a norm for sinners. 
Angry church divisions is a norm for sinners. Infighting is a norm for sinners. That's just the way it is. It might be because of our own pride. It might be because of our own anger at other people, but we are just divisive, peaceless people. If you need proof positive that we are violent people, then just look at what's happening in the world today. We can go to war like that. We sneeze, and next thing you know, we might have nuclear World War III, right? We're on the knife's edge. To, to, to my knowledge, we have not yet had a warless, peaceful century. We have had a massive war in every century of human existence, as far as I can track, in human history. There has never been a century that's been war-free. We are violent people. So Paul sums up the description of our sinful actions by quoting Psalm 36, verse 1. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the summary statement. And David describes how transgression reaches deep into the heart of a sinner in that, in that psalm. And then he says there's no fear of God before their eyes. Why? Because the sinner flatters himself in his own eyes, thinking that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. In other words, we as sinners tend to forget that there's a God that sees all things. He, he heard your words to the other person. He heard your secret gossip session. He saw the post. He sees all the secret addictions. He sees it all. And yet there are moments that we're more afraid of people finding out. And we forget that God actually already knows. No fear of God before their eyes. In some cases, we may actually dupe ourselves to thinking no one will ever find out. Because by the time we stand up before God... He'll, he'll remember our goodness in due time. He'll, he'll not really pull the trigger of judgment. And yet I think it is wise for us to remember that the sin that's concealed now will be exposed in the end. And when that happens, you won't be so embarrassed that other people see it. You have to see the face of God when that's done. Is, that, is anybody else feeling like this is heavy stuff? I mean, the church is broken in lots of different ways. Number one, we haven't clearly preached about the sufficiency of Jesus like we should. That's one side. The other side is we've also sacrificed the doctrine of sin. Sin's just become less sinful over the centuries, especially here in America. God's holiness has become less holy. Now, here's the problem. The, the less you see your sinfulness the less you understand grace. If you want to have a big gospel grace that comes from Jesus, you want a big cross, you have to understand that sin was big. Little sins can be nailed to little crosses. Big, earth-shaking, judgment-bringing type sins need a big Jesus. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna push back on this. In our in our hamartiology is what the what the word is. In our view and our doctrine of sin, if it's not appropriately equivalent to what Scripture describes, we actually may have a different Jesus. You see that? If you don't have the right doctrine of sin, you won't have the right doctrine of Christ. That's why we have to swallow the, the bitter pill so that we can experience the sweetness that's in him. But we're getting ahead of ourselves because Paul hasn't finished his prosecution yet. He's got one more point in his closing remarks. The evidence shatters and he claims that we are innocent. Here, Paul reads the verdict. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable. When we all stand before God and the law puts its straight edge up against us, guess what we're all going to prove? That we're crooked. We're a bent race of people. We're not straight. We're broken. We're warped, twisted. And when that moment happens, there's not going to be any excuses and there's not going to be any justification. There's going to be silence. Silence. No, but, 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 but God, no, no, none of that. There won't be any of that. We will know. 
When we see the Holy God, we will know there is no excuse. There is no self-justification silence that every mouth literally will be shut when the gavel falls. And then the whole world will be answerable to God, accountable to him for its sin. In other words, because we have broken the law, none of us will be proven right by the law standards. Is there anyone willing to stand up and say that they know on their own without any other justification that they will stand before God and escape that final verdict of guilty? See, the fact that nobody's standing to that point is just the point. We do not stand innocent. We are guilty. And we have to acknowledge that. So there's the verdict. All are guilty. No one is good. No, not one. None are righteous. All fallen from heart to mouths to their feet. Typically after court is over and the verdict is read, the convicted person has a chance to appeal. Appealing the verdict is kind of either you saying you don't deserve the punishment that was dished out or you saying that you are truly still innocent. Again, we have no appeal, do we? We go back to retrial. Guess what? The same results happen. We're guilty again and again and again. No matter how many times the case is retried, no, how, no matter how many defense strategies you have, again and again, you're guilty. But there is one appeal that works in the court of heaven. So just as a, as a legal advisor on behalf of God, may I give you some legal counsel when it comes to standing before the, 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 the judge of the universe? When you stand, I don't care what color of tie you have. I don't care what you wear. You know, none of that's going to help sway his eye. Here's the legal advice I'd give you. The only appeal that he will hear and listen to is an appeal to the righteousness of Jesus. We have to appeal to something outside of ourselves because everything in us has fallen and empty. And as Paul will show in next week when Brandon preaches, there is a righteousness that exists apart from the law. There is no righteousness in the law for us. There is no righteousness in ourselves. There is a righteousness to be had though, but it is by nature outside of ourselves. Is a righteousness given only to those who trust in Jesus Christ. On our own, we are just a defendant with no defense. But in him, we find a perfect lawyer, an advocate, a helper, who stood condemned in my place, bore the wrath for my sin, and said, it is finished. And now, thanks to him, Romans 8, 1 is true, there is now no condemnation. Romans 3 says, I deserve to be condemned. Amen. Shut the book on that. But wait, the story's not over. There's a righteous Savior who bears the name Jehovah to scan you. God, my righteousness. Why is it God, my righteousness? Why does God have to bear the name Jehovah to scan you? God, my righteousness. Why does he have to name himself that? Because you have none. God must be it. Jesus must be it. I have none. I am absolutely empty, naked before the Lord, guilty, exposed, broken, dirty. And it's only because of the advocacy of Jesus Christ that my heart, my mouth, and my feet don't send me to hell. That's it. My friends, if we're going to be gospel-believing Christians... That's the gospel we believe. And that's the gospel we accept with no self-justification. Now we're coming to the end here. Romans 1 through 3 may have left you, left you a bit exhausted. If it, if it did you, it certainly did me. I had to sit here and go like, oh, I got to give these people another week of your sinners and your dirty, nasty people. It's not, it doesn't make a very popular preacher. And sadly, I've planned my vacation for next week. So Brandon gets to look like the good preacher and he preaches about justification in Christ. (laughs) But that's the way it works sometimes. My friends, it's a painful thing to be told of our sins, isn't it? It's even more painful to realize that everything that's been said about your sin is true. It's even more painful to be told about your sin and then to be told that everything that was said about your sin is true 
and that there's nothing you can do about it. You're absolutely lost in that. Scripture holds the mirror up to our face, shows how dirty and depraved we are, in order to heal us. Paul's words are not meant to wound any more than a surgeon's scalpel is meant to kill. Surgeon's scalpel is meant to cure, right? Paul's words meant to heal. It's an acknowledging that, yes, you have a tendency to ruin your relationships. You have a tendency to be a self-centered, navel-gazing friend and then wonders why you don't have any friends. You have a tendency to speak terrible things about people. Things that would ruin their lives, things that would cause them to hate you. You have a tendency to be violent. It's in the midst of swallowing that bitterness that then Paul gives us the sweet cup of grace. But there is one who's the exact opposite of you. And he died and rose again to save you. You see, there's two ways to look at this list. There's the first way is to look at it like the Pharisee and to say, none of this explains me. Paul's generally speaking about humanity, but I'm the exception. I'm just glad I'm not like them. You can do that, but it's not going to justify you. You're still going to be condemned. You see in that parable that Jesus used about the Pharisee and the tax collector, the Pharisee looks up and talks about all the things that he does and how he's Glad he's not like those people who use their words in evil ways. And his feet don't go to paths of destruction like theirs do. He's not as violent as they are. So isn't he great because he tithes and, and he comes to church and he doesn't baptize babies. Isn't that great? He goes home unjustified. It's the tax collector, the one who looks at this list and goes, yeah, that's me. It's the one that looks at this list and, and no longer tries to lean on the faulty crutch of self-defense. It's the one who acknowledges they have no defense. It's the one that beats their chest in agony going, oh my God, look at what I've done to my wife. It's the one that feels the stab of the dagger and says, look at what I'm capable of doing to my friends and my, my people. It's the people like that who acknowledge their need for justification elsewhere and they go home justified. My friends, it is far better for you to acknowledge this is you. This is you. But Jesus is yours as well. And because of him, you can go to sleep tonight. Because of him, you can face the future. Because of him, you can look forward to year, this years of, these years of uncertainty, these days in which we're scared and nervous about what's coming next. And we can say, you know what? If it does all end, I can face God with confidence. I can approach the throne room as a son and daughter. Why? Because this was me, but he paid for it. And because the son died on my behalf, I am now a son and daughter of God. There is one who stands before the throne as my advocate, my defense. Jehovah to scan you, God, my righteousness. I have very simple hopes in preaching. I, I don't expect this to be the most earth shattering, shattering news to you. But my prayer is simply this, that you do acknowledge that you are a sinner. That you acknowledge you're a bigger sinner than you can ever acknowledge. You not only sin in ways that can be seen, you sin like David. You sin in ways that there are places in, hidden in your heart that you sin, right? Like David, when David prays in Psalm 51, he says, don't just forgive the things I've done. Forgive the thoughts that I've had in my, things I don't even know that I do on the inside. Inside out, you're broken. Show us everybody else around you. It's far better for you to acknowledge that, to receive it, and to experience the graciousness of God that there is someone outside of you who is perfect and good and gracious. You stand right before God, not because of you, 
but because of him. And as long as he lives, as long as he reigns, which by the way will be forever, you will always have a right and confidence to approach the throne of God as a son and daughter. If you don't know Jesus, Romans 3 still describes you. If you do know Jesus, Romans 3 shows what Jesus had to die for. And hopefully will cause you to rethink it next time you try to do it. My friends, we have no other plea. We have one appeal in the court of God. Jesus, my righteousness. Let's pray. Father God, I um, pray that in this very simple message, Father, that you will continue, Father, to remind us that we are sinners. Father, it is, we live in a world that gets tired of hearing that message. But God, it is true. And as our understanding and our acknowledgement of sin continues to grow, I pray that you will cause our affection for Jesus to grow even bigger. Father, there's simply no way for us to understand right now just how much Jesus did for us. There's no way for us to see sin from your perspective fully. We can only take you at your word for it, Father. So God, we thank you that you have saved us in a way that we can't even begin to fathom. Saved us from danger that we couldn't even begin to fathom. And given us peace that no eye has even yet seen. God, I pray that we will be the loudest worshiping Christians because of the joy and grace that my unrighteousness has not disqualified me or condemned me in your court because Jesus has paid the price. And he has purchased my seat in heaven at your table. We thank you, God. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.